Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Well, um, good afternoon, everybody, uh, and, and welcome once again um, to Have We Got Planning News For You, our, our 12th episode. My name is Charlie Banner of Keating Chambers. Um, thank you all for joining us again in a week where dinner out, a visit to the pub, or even a haircut became exciting and novel activities. And if anyone was left wondering last week, my very classy trip to the Hard Rock Cafe in London on Saturday was awesome. I'm not quite sure my wife would say exactly the same thing. Uh, although Chris with his hair, is it there? Is it not there? Are we going to do the big reveal? Certainly his hair as of last night would have... It's all gone. Good Oh, we have another pack show for you. I'm evening. so happy with a hat. <laughs> <laughs> I would be. If I <laughs> anyway, uh, we've got a great show for you this evening, including our very special and hugely important topic of, of women in planning. Uh, before we start, uh, the three usual reminders. Firstly, please do provide any questions or comments in the Q&A function. We hugely welcome the comments, whether they're serious or banter. We've seen a few already, so keep it flowing. Uh, once again, can we reiterate our usual encouragement to make a donation to the NHS Combined Charities page? I, I think the website's changed. Um, we, we've updated in the flyer. It's char nhscharitiestogether.co.uk. If anyone has, wants to make a donation and has a difficulty finding the website, let us know. Um, I think the website's changed. Or, of course, a local charity of your choice. And thirdly and finally, please do visit and follow, if you haven't already, our LinkedIn page where there are links to the recordings of the previous 11 episodes. And I should say, at the end of the show, we'll give you a little update about the future of Have We Got Plan News For You. Now, uh, it's time to introduce the regular panel. So can I ask each of you in turn to say who you are, where you are and what you're drinking this evening? Good yeah. evening. My name is Mary Cook and I'm from Town Legal. The theme this week is London and I'm drinking London Dry Gin Tankery and jolly good it is too. Hey, my name is uh, Chris Young and uh, I went round to my local beer shop where they have specialist beers everywhere and said have you got anything specifically from London and this is what they came back with Ansbach and Hobday. Ansbach and Hobday? What? That's not the, that must be from Shoreditch. It's not a proper name for a brewery. You're all, it's so posh in London, aren't you? Honestly. <laughs> anyway, anyway, and, and um, keeping the London theme, presumption is uh, listening to the Clash and uh, ah, London calling. It was next up on the track. Cheers, Chris Paul. Very Hi. impressive, Chris. Uh, well, in honour of the fact we've got a London show, I've changed my uh, uh, my picture on this side for a change. And you'll see a picture of Twickenham, yeah. um, which is sitting there. And in uh, honour of the theme of strong, confident women, uh, I'm drinking Valkyrie this evening. And I'm drinking <laughs> James. Well, while we've got you on screen, I say one, of the, one of the great things about doing this show has been getting to know and, build, and, and really building wonderful friendships with, with um, all, all four of, of you. Uh, one thing I learned about Paul last night was Paul was at Nebworth 1986, Freddie's last concert, mm. hence the being utterly amazing. I'm so jealous. You're even older than I thought you were as a result. <laughs> uh, I was still at prep, prep school then. Can I just say, hi, everybody. The two of them were on the WhatsApp until well after midnight oh, talking about rock music. Amazing. <laughs> I, I'm in total awe of Paul off the back of that. That's a legend. And without further ado, on the subject of legends, Sasha, hello. Hello, good afternoon. Sasha White and I'm actually uh, in London, which is appropriate with our London theme, and I am drinking out of my Emma Bridgewater London mug. Some of you will know the sights. We'll see the Tower Bridge, the Gherkin. Windsor Castle, etc. So my London mug, very appropriate. And I did see, I want to thank you two for completely scaring the hell out of me as when I checked my WhatsApp this morning before I had 69 <laughs> messages. 
Arteta resigned. What have I missed overnight? <laughs> nothing. And also, nothing. in honour of London wearing my Middlesex top as well, to celebrate the return of the cricket season, although I should actually be at the Rose Bowl batting for England rather than those <laughs> Muppets who were out for 200 this afternoon. Anyway. Charlie. Fantastic. Thanks, Sasha. Uh, and I should say that um, I'm, I'm in London too, my home in, in South Kensington, drinking London Pride. There we go. Not a posh drink like Chris's one. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and this week I had to buy my own drink uh, because none of you dear viewers seemed to get the hint last week when I mentioned how the very lovely Jonathan Bower of Wombledon Dickinson had sent me a can of Brewdog's Barnard Cast Lightest beer for free in the post. Stop begging, stop begging. Uh, anyway, we are super delighted and fortunate to have as our very special guest uh, this week, Charlotte Morfitt, the co-founder and co-chair of Women in Planning, uh, as well as being Principal Planning Officer at London Borough of Walton Forest. Not quite sure how you have the time to do so many good <laughs> things, Charlotte. Thank you so much um, for joining us. Um, tell us, where are you and, and what are you drinking this evening? Uh, London, meantime, in a Camden House um, glass on a Battersea Power Station poster. Oh. So very, very <laughs> lovely, with a Battersea Power Station picture in the background. Yeah. Out, out London us uh, all. Uh, fantastic. Well, we're honoured to have you on the show. Really looking forward to have you joining in both our special discussion topic of women in planning and then after as Mary's interview with you uh, and our subsequent questions. So but please, of course, please feel free to comment on our case or decisions of the week if you'd like to. Um, you're welcome to chip in as, as, as you please or, or drink, your, drink your meantime if you prefer. Um, now, without further ado, um, our first topic this week is court case of the week. And, and Sasha, you're going to kick this one off. I am. I'm going to talk about the recent judgment in the Queen on the application of John Miles and Tunbridge and Morling Borough Council. And this was a recent judicial review of a grant of a planning consent via Section 73. The actual facts aren't too relevant for us, but what I wanted to pick up was four takeaway legal points for our audience, which are highly material because we all have to advise on the forensic nature of planning reports. And I think we all are asked by our clients whether there are the prospects of JR on planning reports. And I want to make the point which Neil Cameron QC sitting as a Deputy High Court judge reiterates. Firstly, of course, is that planning officers' reports must not be read individually, particular sentences. You've got to read the whole document as a whole. That's the first point that's important. Second of all, in, in honour of women in planning and probably the most serious and significant female judge in our practising career, Baroness Hale, as she emphasised in the case I did with Neil Cameron in Morsh and Hampstead County Council, you must always remember that members must be assumed to have local knowledge and local understanding of the sites that come before them. I also wanted to touch on, of course, and this is often forgotten when we get excited as claimants, is that the test when you look at the report as a whole is whether the members have been significantly misled. It doesn't mean that you have one particular word inappropriately in the report or something that might be wrong, but the significantly misled test is really important and the judges impose it and apply it strictly. And that was absolutely revealed in this case, all of you who have got a, an absolute memory for policy, which Paul showed earlier this week in our discussion about BPG 16 and 17, will know that of course, Para 144 and the Greenbelt framework talks about substantial weight mm. rather than great. And one of the grounds in this claim was an allegation that the members had been misled because there was reference to great weight being given to the harm to the Greenbelt as opposed to substantial. Now, of course, Neil Cameron stressed the point that he wasn't willing to accept that that effectively amounted to a, a significantly misleading of the members. The other final two points I just want to make is that the risk of cost, we've all seen committee reports generally uh, when Paul in his younger days gave local authorities advice was, uh, you know, the risk of cost. Don't go down this route of refusing because you're likely to face cost. What Neil reiterates again is that the risk of costs is not a material planning consideration should, should be in a balancing exercise, which is completely right, or the risk of reputational damage, i.e. Tunbridge and Malling always make poor decisions, blah, blah, blah. So both of those are not material considerations. The last final point is, again, which Chris and I enjoyed each other's company in February, out-of-date policies under Power 11. Again, 
to be stressed by the courts for the 7,000th time. Please, all of us fellow members of PIVA, note that effectively the out-of-date nature of policies is effectively a judgment, a planning judgment in the context of the circumstance of the development plan in Power 11. So I hope really, although this case has a, is very small, it involved effectively development involving free caravans, those are the four takeaway points. Thanks, Sasha. I mean, I've got a couple of well, an observation on this. I mean, as you said, one of the grounds were, of claim was that the officer's report on which the decision relied used the term great weight to be described the weight to be going to harm to Greenbelt rather than substantial weight, which is what the MPPF requires. And unsurprisingly, uh, the judge, Neil Cameron, hello, Neil, um, he held this was a semantic uh, distinction without any substantive difference, and plainly that's right. But it does highlight a, a broader point which is the varying use of adjectives to describe weight by, by everybody, by barristers, by, by witnesses, by decision makers, uh, at both local authority and, and Secretary of State and inspector level. Uh, we have significant weight, substantial weight, considerable weight, great weight. Are they all the same? I mean, significant could be merely more than insignificant, or it could mean substantial. At the other end of the scale, there's reduced weight, limited weight. I've sometimes seen some weight. And, wouldn't it be better, leaving aside some legal issues, wouldn't it be better if there was some agreed standard form terminology to use for the sake of consistency and clarity? I, I rather think so. No, you see, I, dis I disagree with that because then you just get to this forensic, you know the joy of our LVIA. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the box. Yeah. And I mean, I've got a JL coming up in a couple of weeks where the claimant is claiming the use of limited weight to direction to, to members significantly misled mm -hmm. the members. I'm not going to obviously opine on that, but there is a, this obsession with the idea. I, I think most members, and we'll be fascinated to hear of them, most members listen to what an officer says, but frankly then come to their own judgment about the weight to be given to policies. That's my view. If they're told a policy should have limited weight, they'll reach a judgment whether that's right or not. The same if substantial or great. So I would actually, Charlie, I'm going to go away from you. I think yeah. it's much better yeah. than not overly prescriptive. Well, I mean, basically there's three kinds, which is a lot of weight, not very much weight, and something in the middle or no weight. I mean, those are the, 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 the basic concepts and all these different adjectives used. I, I don't know. I, I find... I, I don't think this is a legal issue, and he was quite right in this judgment to held there's no, no distinction between um, great and substantial weight, but it's not, I don't think, personally, I don't think it's very helpful. Anyway, something, welcome any comments anybody has on that, indeed people who might have used these terms in decisions. Can I just add an addition, yes. which I like using compelling weight. <laughs> compelling weight, decisive weight, of course. Spend a whole day coming over through the English dictionary, but but um, we won't do that because otherwise our viewing figures will get down to about three people, including ourselves. Um, so let's and, move. And on you might to, lose some panelists as well, just to use the tip. Exactly. <laughs> so let, let's move on to the pins of sector state decisions. Of the week. We've got two. We've got a planning decision and then an infrastructure decision. The first one is the Woburn Sands uh, decision, and and Chris, I think you're going to tell us about this in the first instance. Okay, so, so here it is. Here's the Woburn Sands decision. And uh, this is the Secretary of State's second go at getting the answer correct and lawful. The first one, uh, he got completely wrong when he said the supply was around 10 to 15,000 without looking at the specifics of the site. And uh, Peter Goatley and uh, JCB in uh, my stable uh, took that to the High Court and were it was successfully quashed by Mr. So here was the second go, and obviously all eyes were on the five-year land supply and the approach that was taken. Well, it's been dismissed again. It's a proposal for 203 houses and a primary school um, in Milton Keynes, and um, the inspector was Tom Gilbert uh, Waldridge. Now, um, the site's fairly sustainable. Uh, it's not uh, uh, in a greenbelt location, but the main interest in the site is this whole issue of the approach to deliverable. Um, the three main issues I think to focus on are the base date and what you can take into account after the base date, um, the use of pro formas uh, as, a, as a form of evidence. Um, and the standard required, and oh my God, I'm going to mention it, yes, St. Modwin. Um, and Paul's going to talk about that afterwards, and then we're going to talk about it for about three hours on WhatsApp. Um, and then um, the third thing is later 
uh, using later base dates because the base date, let's start with the base date. The base date in this case was the 1st of April 2019, which seems like a very, very long time ago in a completely different world, frankly. And many people say, well, you shouldn't look beyond the base date. We should look at the evidence the council have got at that base date and not look at subsequent events. Now, one of the reasons we do that is you have to be very disciplined not to look at new planning permissions. Because if you include new planning permissions after the base date, I always think of it as a conveyor belt, then if you're taking those into account, you have to drop all the completions that are after the base date. And that gets impossible to do. So you should only have your five years worth of planning permissions. But of course, people look at the evidence. We all look at the evidence beyond the base date. And sometimes, if it helps you, you argue you shouldn't look at it. And if it doesn't help you, you say you should ignore it. And what has happened here is the Secretary of State has endorsed the inspector's approach of looking beyond the base date and uh, taking into account new evidence to um, improve the council's approach to deliverable sites. The council relied on a lot of evidence after the base date and a lot of very recent evidence as well. And the Secretary of State has endorsed that approach. Not everybody will agree with that, but that's, um, that gives us at least the Secretary of State's understanding. I have to say, those councils, I think that's gonna help them, might be in for a, a rocky ride, because of course we've got COVID-19, and uh, if we can look beyond the base date, and I think, to be honest, that's why it's right. We can't go through this period now with base dates back in April 2019, and imagine nothing has happened. I think it is right, probably, to look beyond the base date. Um, but you certainly shouldn't include planning permissions beyond that date. Second yeah. issue is the use of pro formas. Now, this is just gathering evidence. The council have got enough to do, no doubt Charlotte can confirm that. And uh, so they rely on the developers to provide them with information, but to make sure the developers provide consistent information, they send out a pro forma saying, you know, how are you getting on with the site? And um, a lot of discussion about whether that's really clear evidence. Uh, but in this case, um, the inspector and the Secretary of State have endorsed these pro formas. Um, I have to say, whatever you face by way of evidence from the council, if you're for the developer, you can always go back. I always argue about whether if there's no certainty over the period of the implementation, then you can discuss that, whether the pro forma goes and committed or not. The particular criticism here was about Homes England filling out the pro formas, not always filling them out, not always ticking the boxes. Uh, the inspector seems to have been fairly... Um, indulgent, shall we say, about the quality of the pro formas. But what's critical here is that we get a, the inspector specifically referring to the St. Modwin case and reminding us, as we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, that first line of the 2012 definition remains in the definition now. And as a consequence, people are referring back to the St. Modwin case. I don't blame Reuben Taylor. Uh, QC and Matthew Henderson for doing that because it's still in there and they've obviously persuaded the inspector about that but he also refers to another court of appeal case which said well it's a matter of judgment and it doesn't mean you automatically um, have to treat that but the one thing I would say about Sir Modwin <laughs> start him off um, is that the inspector observes that it, it is right that the site doesn't the delivery of the site in five years doesn't even need to be probable <laughs> really I thought we were trying to solve a housing crisis, yeah? Um, anyway, that's... that's yeah. <laughs> I must interject before we hand over to Paul. I must interject. Yeah. Um, my first trip outside London for four months on Monday is to none other than East Riding of Yorkshire. I can't wait. Um, Jolly, Paul, Jolly, Paul has, Jolly, I haven't finished. I've got another hour, OK? <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Paul has finally given me his address so I can send him a postcode, but I'm still waiting it from Chris. Just um, quickly, the, the third point was the base date, that the, the appellants looked at a further base date, which was in October, and the inspector said that wasn't appropriate, but in any event, he said there was a five-year land supply, whichever base date you took. There you go. Paul, what's your take on it? Well, I, I was hugely tempted to uh, make some comments about five-year supply, and then I saw the script and saw that Chris was going to be in front of me. And therefore, whatever points there were to take with regard to five-year supply, they were all going to be taken. There's just no <laughs> point in adding anything. So I've got two points, which may seem completely random from this case. The first of which is, if you're providing affordable housing in excess of the minimum, what weight should you give to uh, at that? And the Secretary of State tells us extraordinarily unhelpfully, in paragraph 27, significant. 
Well, it's a long time since I did English O-level, but significant is in contradistinction between not significant and insignificant. So the Secretary of State telling us it's significant is telling us that it, it's there. It is singularly unhelpful, as well as inconsistent with at least three other Secretary of State decisions I can think of. Yeah. Second mm -hmm. thing to say is paragraph 20, best and most versatile land. When I started off this game in the early 14th century, um, best and most versatile <laughs> land was very much a, a, a real problem. If you've got grade two land as part of your development, it was viewed as a problem. We, I think, have come full circle around now. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a Secretary of State decision or an inspector's decision which has been dismissed on the basis that we failed to prove that there's preferential um, uh, agricultural land lower down the scale. I do wonder, therefore, whether or not guidance needs to be revised to take account of what decision makers actually do. But there we are, post-Brexit, we might need every square Fair foot. Fair point, Paul. I mean, I mean when, when you started, I think London was best and most versatile land, wasn't it? But there we are. <laughs> do you know, I was, I, was, I was really starting to like you then, Charlie, for a minute. <laughs> you walked, you walked yeah, into it off. Charlie, uh, I think you should have made, we must have Paul, I know, is introducing the next case, and I think he's got to do it with Dick Van Dyke, because it's London week, he's got to do it in Cockney, he can't do it in his... <laughs> well, go for it, Paul. Not, tell I'm us about Moffat Vanguard, the DCO for the offshore wind farm there. Well, um, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid that this deals with uh, uh, SACs and SPAs in relation to the Yorkshire coast, so it will be betraying my heritage <laughs> to use a Cockney accent. Uh, to do this. So um, we've, we've done one previous DCO with regard to uh, a strategic rail freight interchange, as Charlie reminded me when I told him that this was going to be our first one. Um, that's the, uh, the goldfish brain. Um, so the, the Norfolk Vanguard was one of a couple of cases decided not by the Secretary of State for housing communities, local government and anything else they can think of uh, at the moment, um, but by the Department of Energy by Alex Sharma. Still decided in relation to planning context, still decided in relation to the same material considerations, etc. Uh, but it's a decision with regard to 158 uh, wind turbines off the uh, east coast uh, and what the effect is. And it's a really interesting case, not because of the result, which was ultimately to grant contrary to the recommendation of the examiners, but how the Secretary of State got to that. And what the Secretary of State did was receive the report of the examiners after the whole DCO process, after the year long examination process, which recommended refusal. And then the Secretary of State looked at that decision and said, I'd like some more representations. So he has a recommendation of refusal in relation to the potential impacts upon protected species and SPAs on the east coast of Yorkshire and says, well, that's not the outcome I want. I want to listen. I want to hear what everybody else has to say with regard to that specific issue. He takes further representations in relation to that and then concludes the matter has been addressed. I think that's really interesting. Last week we talked about minding to grant uh, decisions. But it's a really interesting process. If we want to build, 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 if we have a technical knockout point with regard to either an inspector's decision or a secretary of state decision, we should think about reversion back to the parties to try and get the right result if everything else is equal. If, there's a, if it's wrong in principle, so what? But if the 106 is wrong, if there's a, a, an inadequacy of information that can be addressed, why would you start the whole process again? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's right also to point out that on the same, same day, um, there was another another project called the Orlestead Hornsey project where the Secretary of State has done that and said, well, I've not got enough information to conclude that there wouldn't be an effect on a different SAC. This is the Flamber and Filey SAC, just a bit further up, uh, Charlie, where I used to spend uh, my childhood. Oh, yeah. um, and the Secretary of State said, right, I'm going to give you, uh, this is the result. I'm not being satisfied with regard to the amount of impact on uh, SPA. So I'm going to kick it off to the parties and address me on that issue further by the end of the year. I think it's absolutely the right way to go. And Section 78 inspectors and the, the Department for Communities and Local Government could do with listening to that because it's a way of getting us proper, meaningful decisions. I, I agree with that, Paul. I mean, I, it, it seems to me that maybe it's something the PPG could address. I mean, there's plenty of legal power to issue a minded to grant uh, or indeed a minded to refuse letter, whichever way you look at it, subject to X, Y, Z, because the Secretary of State certainly a few years ago used the habit of it. Um, it, it's it's you know, this, this 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 individual case demonstrates the power still there in all contexts. Inspectors tend not to. I mean, there's there a big case John Gray did Kit Kat with the advocate in in Cambridge when John Gray was he, he issued a minded quite a well known minded to grant um, case subject to further 106. Um, but there seems to be a reluctance amongst inspectors to do it. The power is still there. A bit of PPG, which could be stuck on the website overnight, would 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 indicate that it could be done and would avoid 
people having to go back to square one on technicality. And, and, and Charlie, and Charlie, we can learn an awful lot from Scotland in a number of respects. Yes. And yeah. In Scotland, you have minded to grant letters all the time, subject to Section 75, which is the equivalent of 106 yeah. obligations being entered into. So you yeah. don't have to waste your time spending a small fortune on lawyers to draft a 106 for a case that ultimately gets dismissed. So it's, it's a sensible way forward. And there's always costs there for if, if it's the appellant's fault for not having, uh, you know, not having got their ducks in order in the first place. Yeah, so oh, I wanted to know, though, if, of course, with the obsession with timelines and 24 weeks, if you issue a minded to, minded to grant decision, would that register, would PINs consider that as a determination? And I, I bet they don't. That's the problem. Bridget, you're listening. Tell us what you think. Should, should that stop the clock if it was going to going back? Um, let's let's move on to our special topic um, uh, and women in planning. Um, Mary, you're going to introduce this topic, so I shall hand over to you. Thank you very much. So, ladies and gentlemen out there, planners, planners, whether you're a, a planning uh, lawyer or whether you're just a straightforward uh, planner like Charlotte. Um, I'm going to talk about sort of my journey in two ways. I'm going to talk about uh, what it was like to be a woman at the bar in the 1980s, um, which is when I started. Uh, and then I'm just going to say a little bit about my planning journey. So I, I started uh, pupillage in 1984. And I came from a background where I was one of four girls. I went to a single sex school and frankly, it never occurred to me that I couldn't get on in life because of my sex. I was actually more uh, concerned about not getting on at the bar because I hadn't gone to Oxbridge, which I considered to be quite a, a, a stumbling block, block at that stage. Um, however, I managed to overcome that, speaking as one who had a law degree from Cardiff. Um, and when I started my pupillage, uh, I soon discovered that um, sexism uh, was, was rife. <laughs> and there were four rules I adopted to survive. Rule number one was keep a desk between myself and any man that was more focused on my body rather than what I said. And there were a few of them around. Number two was that when I felt someone was... Uh, uh, to use the modern jargon, trying to I decided that it was much better to face up to that person, go out for a drink, give them the brush off, rather than risk being found in, uh, or caught in a room alone with them. And I had some interesting encounters. One of my uh, early encounters was when a Silken Chambers uh, took me out uh, for dinner. This was literally in week one of pupillage. Uh, and we, we swept by his house so that he could, um, quotes, get into something comfortable. This chap was divorced. Uh, he took me into his living room, which was surrounded by mirrors. And uh, I proceeded to tell him that I, I was only interested in dinner and I wasn't interested in anything else. And uh, to be fair, he took, he took no uh, for an answer in a gallant way, bought me a nice dinner and never bothered me again. I then had to put up with my senior clerk taking me out to a strip club. Why he chose to do that, I don't know. I think he was a boozer. I think he wanted to test me. Uh, and he wanted to see if I could, how I would react and how I would cope. Um, the third rule I had was, don't romance with anybody in chambers. Don't romance with anybody that you meet professionally. Maintain, rule number four, maintain good relationships at all times with clerks. Uh, because they were the people that dished out the work in, in the, the early stages at, at the bar. There was no um, maternity provision. There was no working from home. There were no mobile phones when I started. There were no computers. And there were no female role models in my chambers because there were no female tenants when I started as a pupil. Uh, and I fell into... Um, my pupillage, uh, I fell into planning in a way because my second six months were, uh, pupillage was with a, a, a chap called Tony Porton, great guy. And before I started uh, my second six month pupillage with him, uh, I read over a weekend Professor Malcolm Grant's book about urban planning. And I basically taught myself uh, with the help of Tony Porton all about planning. And 
Planning to me was a revelation. It was full of interesting professional people and it was full of interesting places. And it was an escape from divorce, family work, uh, domestic violence work, and, and all things that uh, female lawyers were in danger of being given uh, all the time. So I, I really enjoyed it. And I started working with uh, local planning authorities. And I found that there were certainly more women in planning authorities than there were either at the planning bar at that stage or working with planning law firms. You must remember that back in the 1980s, the only way you could instruct uh, a planning barrister was through a solicitor. My life changed when direct professional access opened up because that gave me access to planners and developers. And actually I found town planners and, and some developers more open-minded about using a woman than some um, male planning solicitors, to be perfectly honest. And there were, you know, many, many firms uh, dominated by men in terms of uh, planning law. And so that wasn't an easy, uh, easy path. I was very lucky. I worked hard. I got, I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, and my, the silks, the planning silks in my chambers never refused to use me as a, as a junior simply because I was a woman. Now, I, I make that point because that was not the case in other sets. In other sets, uh, women were not allowed to be um, juniors to male leaders, sometimes because those leaders' wives didn't want it. And if those leaders said, no, I'm not having a, uh, a, a lady junior, they, they, no one questioned it. And it was very, it was very hard in certain sets for ladies to be to, to be led by juniors. Uh, sorry, to be led by male silks, mm. and, th and that was a serious issue uh, throughout the uh, the back end of the eighties and the nineties. I would say, and indeed, uh, uh, it's something that um, all sets really need to actively uh, progress, in my view. Now. I grew older, I, I, I gained more experience, and it's no secret to any of you out there who know me that I applied for silk. I applied for silk several times, and I didn't get silk. And when I was given feedback, I was told that I was too assertive, my advocacy was too aggressive, and I became pretty disillusioned, uh, I can tell you, by my uh, failure, continue, continuing failure to uh, take silk, when on the face of it, I had a very successful private practice. I did a lot of work with house builders. Um, I did CPO work. You know, I was having a great time, to be, uh, to, be, to be perfectly honest. When I became head of chambers, I made it my business to ensure that, um, so far as I could, life changed. I insisted that um, there was more structure to career progression that we stopped calling clerks clerks and started calling them practice managers because they had to manage people's practices they had to manage women's practices they had to manage women having children and then returning to work and they had to support women in that role uh, and i think one of the other sort of issues that the planning bar face is that there are not very many female um, clerks, practice managers. Uh, to my uh, disappointment, they reverted back to using the word clerk when I left. And I think there needs to be more of that. There needs to be more uh, role models out there. There need to be more ladies who are uh, heads of chambers and more ladies who are practice managers. Yeah. Now, the other thing I, I just wanted to say before I bring, bring Charlotte into it is that there were very few lady inspectors when I started. There were very few ladies giving evidence when I started. And it's a joy that that has moved on and that there definitely are a lot more uh, lady inspectors and very good they are too. And I think actually a lot of them, <laughs> a lot of men, whether they be witnesses, whether they be uh, barristers, they behave rather better in front of lady inspectors, uh, uh, I venture to suggest, than they do in front of uh, some male inspectors. Women inspectors call you out more, and that's a good thing. 
because actually uh, we're not going to get rid of this sexism unless we call it out. Mm. And women in planning seem to me um, to have had opportunities in the sense that it's a welcoming profession, whether you're in the private or the public sector. But there's still a problem that there are not enough senior women in positions of responsibility in private consultancies. And I'm not just not really singling out planning consultancies, the same is true of uh, highway um, consultancies. There do, we do need to see more women um, being taken on at more senior levels. And I think that that really requires more agile working policies, greater flexibility. And I venture to suggest that this whole COVID-19 thing is going to change the way we work and that actually in the long term, women will benefit. And as a result of that, everybody will benefit because when you have a team, we're, we're at, the, at the end of the day, we're problem solving. And when you have a team which has a mixed gender and is more diverse, you get more creative thinking and you get better outcomes. Larry, can I ask you very quickly, what do you think about the, the prospect of digital um, and remote working uh, for inquiries and hearings, potentially in combination with in-person, you do perhaps three days a week in-person, one day a week, could that um, have, have an effect in breaking down some of the remaining barriers, uh, for example, you know, associated with all the need to travel and everything that goes with that? I think, yeah, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. You need to be instructed first, though. Well, yeah, you need absolutely. to be given the opportunity and yeah, you need yeah, to be given yeah. a fair opportunity, whether you're the, you know, whoever you are. Anyway, I think that's enough from me. Absolutely yeah. enough from me. I'd like to bring in now Charlotte. Mary. Charlotte, um, we're thrilled to have you here. And I would like to start off just by asking you, why did you become a planner, Charlotte? What was it that inspired you? Yeah, well, I, I think I'm one of those planners that fell into it, actually. Um, but I'd always had a love of ancient town planning. Um, I studied art history, where I continued my interest in architectural history, but also did a lot of studying around William Morris, John Ruskin, Priapolites, all of who sort of feed into planning theory and practice now. So um, it seemed like a natural progression when the career was um, highlighted to me, really. And what triggered your involvement in... Um, the start of uh, starting women in planning why did you do that yeah so it was a joint effort um, I always like to make sure that everybody knows that it wasn't me on my own um, it was with Alison Mackay um, and we found it because we knew there were actually quite a lot of women working in planning but we couldn't see them everywhere they weren't very visible um, and there's definitely significantly more women working in planning than other built environment professions including like you said highways engineering but also architecture and surveying um, we just really didn't think they were visible, they weren't speaking at conferences, they weren't at project meetings, um, they were hardly ever expert witnesses as you said, um, and we didn't really think this was right and we wanted to put a spotlight on women, especially senior women, because we wanted to promote their professional expertise and give them opportunities to um, show those professional expertise, they didn't seem to be given those opportunities, but we also wanted to provide somewhere that was free um, and inclusive in terms of events um, so that the public sector to come along with the private sector because we definitely thought that that was a gap in the market that there wasn't necessarily anything that was aimed at including the public sector in mm. sort of discussing women's issues and offering them a platform to promote their professional expertise as well. And how, how important Charlotte do you think role models um, and or strong leadership are yeah, so I think visibility is, is really important. Visibility matters. Um, but I don't necessarily believe you can't be what you can't see, but it's a hell of a lot harder. Um, so I think role models and visibility of them is really, really important. Um, and I you know, benefited from some really amazing female role models in my career. Uh, Erica Mortimer and Karen Jones when I worked at CGMS, Seema Manchada when I was an enforcement officer at was a council and now I've got um, the wonderful Jane Custance who's director of planning at Walking Forest who I'm learning a lot of while I'm still there um, yeah. but I do think leadership is crucial um, because uh, well it doesn't have to be diverse leadership I think that does help but um, it needs to be inclusive leadership. I think that's the difference. I think, you know, diversity is great, but it's only going to work if people, once they're there, feel included within that company culture. And I think 
inclusive leadership is really a model that we should be aiming for especially in planning where you're kind of convening people and you're trying to get everybody included to come up with the solutions like you said you do need that diversity of thought but you need people to be inclusive um yeah i agree i agree charlotte and i'm not suggesting that um that men can't provide strong no. for uh, good women either um what about uh, you're somebody who's had young as you are you have had experience already in both the private and the public sector so i just wanted to explore with you whether you've noticed any difference in the way you were treated in those sectors well i don't know if i'm i'm still classed as a young planner anymore i've got 10 well, 10 years experience but young young for our profession um i appreciate that um, um i'd say i've not been treated differently and I do think there is an issue about constantly comparing public and private. I think it's about the organisation and the culture of that organisation. And that can be good and bad on both sides um, of the sector. Um, and I'm just lucky to have worked in organisations uh, which have good cultures. I would say that sometimes that the public sector is slightly more inclusive, but I think that's because it's been doing certain things for longer. But the private sector is definitely catching up um, on on being better employees and offering flexible working and such like yeah I, when i my, my perception was always that the the the, um, the public sector was much better at um flexible working um job sharing um that that sort of thing yeah very hard 10 years ago really really hard to get um that sort of thing as a right uh i mean life is changing and people are a bit more enlightened um, your PhD, what, what is it uh, what, and why are you doing it? Um, so I was very lucky to be awarded a bursary from Leeds Beckett University uh, from the wonderful Karen Hallward, which um, who is part of Women in Planning Yorkshire, um, but also uh, teaches women and planning as part of the degree that she um, leads on uh, there. Um, and really it builds on what I've already been researching. It's around women planning and leadership. Leadership is something that we often say in planning is lacking and is weak and needs improving, but no one actually says what that looks like. So the aim is to find out what that looks like and also just to see how women leaders may be acting differently to male leaders within planning. All right. Well, Charlotte, I, I've got several other questions, but I may, if I have time, I'm going to come back to them. But I'm going to throw it out now to um, my fellow panellists here, because I know that they've got questions they want to ask you. So, um, Paul, do you want to kick off with your question, please? You're on mute, Paul. You're on mute, Paul. <laughs> the technical expertise after 12 episodes, it's just pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> um, before I ask you my question, can I just, can you just bear with me for one second? Because a couple of things. First of all, unbelievably moving to listen to Mary and upsetting to hear my profession uh, giving rise to um, such difficulties, um, I, I was very I was benefited from having Francis Patterson QC as my head of chambers for a sub substantial ch uh, chunk of my professional career. So I had a female role model who was um, stunning in terms of her ability and in terms of her, her rise to her career. Um, uh, and I'm going to we, we have a rule about not shouting out in terms of consultants, but I'm going to shout out one of mine, one of my loyalist consultants uh, with a bunch that I really enjoy working with, which is Emery Planning. Last year, there was a survey which was uh, which consultancies had the highest proportion at director level. So I am going to shout out for Emory Planning because they've got 50 percent of their directors yeah. uh, are, are female. Um, so thumbs up to them. Mm. Um, and the, 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 the other point I just wanted to say was, uh, uh, well, I just want to widen it out a little bit. Um, because whilst women in planning is, is extraordinarily important and whilst I've been very proud to speak at a couple of women in planning events, I'm interested in your views about diversity more generally, because um, we have a problem in terms of gender diversity at the bar and at the planning profession, but there's also a wider problem in terms of diversity more generally. And I'd, I'd welcome your thoughts on that, Charlotte, having been in such an organization that's raised the profile in terms of gender issues, how do we as lawyers, how do you as planners raise diversity issues more generally? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, it, women in planning isn't just about gender diversity and I'm always the first one to say that, that we just believe in greater diversity and inclusion and equality within the whole of the profession 
Um, but you're right, the RTPI research has found that 97% of the planning profession is white, with about 3% being from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. And that's really not good enough. That doesn't reflect quite a lot of the communities that we all plan for. Um, and, you know, couple that with the fact that to be a planner, um, or even a lawyer, my sister's a lawyer, you know, you do your bachelor's and then you do your master's and, and your training. It's, it, it's quite a hard slog to get in there in the first place. And so we end up not only just having quite a white um, profession, but quite a middle class one because it's expensive. Like it's not cheap to do a master's. Uh, you know, it can cost about 12 grand now, maybe 13 grand just mm -hmm. to do a planning master's. Um, it's definitely nearly doubled, tripled since mm -hmm. I did it 10 years ago. Um, so I think we've got an, an issue there in making it quite an inclusive way to, uh, to train to be a planner. Um, but I mean, for me personally, I'm starting to look at intersectionality between, because if we looked at that 3% figure, how many of them are then women? Probably not very many. And um, that is why I've been a firm supporter from the beginning of BAME in Property and 100% behind everything that Priya Shah does. And because um, I don't have the answers. Um, but I think we're starting to to understand the issue more that's the first thing you need to do you need to have the data we've got the data there aren't very many there isn't much very very much ethnic diversity in planning so we know that and then the rtpi's change strategy i think has started to ask the right questions and look to the right areas of search so i think that's a really great start to to trying to find the answers um but i do think there are some things that we can do um we can recruit differently and uh this is in the public or private you know, you can do blind CVs, um, public practice, which Meta um, from Town Planning is just joined the board of, proves that you can do really um, inclusive um, recruitment um, and you don't have to know everything about the person and you can choose some amazing people. And they have ended up with more women and more ethnic diversity than most recruitment pools within planning and built environment professions. So there's some really good practices out there. And I do think that the RTPI's work, and especially Hannah Blundstone and Phil Ridley on apprenticeships is the right route because that is diversifying how we get everybody in. Um, and I think finally, just to say, I think we can all agree that we can promote the profession better. Um, but what I worry about is lots of different organisations going off and doing their own things rather than us all coming together and coming up with a concrete solution to that and a concrete programme of going out and engaging with schools. It's not easy, it's quite difficult, especially in the larger cities. And that's why I'm really happy being a board member of the Planning Office Society that we've got a collaboration agreement with the RTPI to really look at how we can focus and promote the industry. And I'm hoping that lots of like consultancies and local authorities will get on board and support that because I know they all have their individual programmes and things, but we do really need to do this together and unitedly mm. to actually make change. Mm. Thank, Thank you, Charlotte. Chris, do you have a question? I do, I do. Charlotte, hello. Um, my question is, what role would you like to see men play in uh, Women for Planning in Planning? I, I see uh, that men attend some of your events, uh, but I confess I have some reluctance to go to them because um, I don't know if they're aimed at men. And part of my fear is that people would think I was going because that's what I thought I should do rather than for the benefit of the women the organisation is seeking to assist. Yeah, and it's a really good question. It's one we get asked all the time. Um, we're not trying to be the equivalent of an old boys network or club. So um, we're very inclusive. Um, and it's just about raising the visibility of women. And we want men to sort of understand that these women are out there and have got amazing professional records as well it's not just um a women's club um and we're big believers in he for she i mean men make up the other half of the population and we're not going to get any change unless you're on board with it so we need men as allies and i think um to take a quote from Sia from your chambers from the blog that she did for tripwire and is also on the uh, women in planning website you know um Women seeking to achieve equality without the support of men is like trying to get consent for a huge contentious development without the support of officers and members. Those that occupy positions of power are fundamentally part of the solution. And the problem can't be fixed unless those in power, which is overwhelmingly men, understand the problem and seek to address it. And I think, you know, um, that's, that, that is part of the, the solution. But in terms of events, um, I can understand being hesitant for some of them. 
you know we've talked about ones that have been we've had about the menopause and maybe men wouldn't want to or feel comfortable coming to those and maybe the women wouldn't feel comfortable having men at them but 90 percent of our events are just women speakers sometimes with men speak male speakers as well talking about planning issues and actually you like mary said you do get like completely different opinions sometimes we had yeah. one about the housing white paper we had alice lester lorraine Hughes, um sarah parkinson and rachel herbert and we had a completely different discussion to anything else that i heard on the housing white paper at the time it was really really interesting and it, you know it stuck in my mind that having diverse panels for events really does lead to like diverse discussions um and just to add that you and you and Paul have been, been wonderful supporters of women in planning and without you guys you know we probably wouldn't be as successful as we are at the moment so you're already doing it Chris you're already supporting us thank you thank you Charlotte I know we're chaps we're running slightly short of time but Sasha what was your question yeah very quickly Charlotte where where do you see women in planning in the next five seven years what's your roadmap yeah, so I think we've grown significantly since Jill Bell set up um, Women in Planning Northwest, and um, we're really just reviewing the progress we've made and how to sustain it. And that's really our um, focus for the next um, three to five years. We're just, we're just working on our business plan. We're just about to announce our newly appointed um, advisory board. And the focus, I think, for us now um, is we're quite good at doing the events and CPD and the networking, but um, really probably looking at mentoring what research we can we can undertake that shows what the main issues are for women working within planning and any sort of training that can support women to be the best that they can be thank you very much charlotte charlie Thanks, do you Mary. have a question or should i hand back to you because we've only we haven't got much longer can I, I don't have my question but i am going to ask just make uh, one point that uh, somebody has, has commented upon, I won't say who it is, but a, a female planning barrister said, I think many members of the profession are unaware of the issues women face because we don't discuss it. I think we meaning probably women, but I don't know. Uh, the, the danger this creates is that, that they, therefore men, assume there are no problems. And I'd just like to comment from, from a bit of personal experience here, because my wife's a, a barrister, not a planning barrister. Um, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And if maybe now uh, perhaps people don't, men don't assume there are no problems, they don't, they're not fully aware of the range of problems, particularly those ones that are concealed. I hold my hands completely up. I had no idea of the range of, of hidden problems that um, female members of the bar had. I was very alive to the obvious things. There's an awful lot, and some of sometimes the more damaging things, that corrosive things are the unobvious things because they're harder to demonstrate. And, and you know, since I met my wife and, and living with seeing the not quite daily, but certainly weekly challenges presented by this. I just want to highlight that comment because I think it's really important for men listening. And actually, Charlotte, I, it's, I, I, may I say, I think it probably underscores what you said about the importance of a concerted and united front on this. Because uh, by, by doing that, I think it shines a spotlight on some of these things which otherwise may not um, uh, be realised. That's my comment. The question, will there come a point where women in planning no longer needs to exist because it's achieved its mission? And if so, what's that point and when do you think it will be reached? I think it's um, a really good question. It's really dangerous, I think, to start saying, oh, like this threshold is um, the right one because, like you said, we don't know what all the challenges are. Um, you know, you could argue that planning's quite good. Like I said, there's 40% of the profession are women. Um, but from the research we've undertaken, only 83% no, sorry, 83% of a director and above in consultancies are held, like positions are held by men. So there's not very many women in leadership roles. And I think until we get a greater proportion of women working in leadership roles, um, then, then we can reassess where we are. I'm a big believer in the 30% club and what they're trying to achieve. And I think planning should look at that and, and sign up to something similar, actually. Can I venture to suggest, uh, Charlotte, that, that there'll always be a, a need for an organisation oh, yeah. women in planning? Um, you know, there's no bar. Uh, and may I also suggest um, to everyone who's listening uh, and my fellow panellists that, you know, for simple things uh, make a difference. Never join an all-male panel. Mm -hmm. Always try and insist that there are women in in your in your groups in your teams. Um, if you find yourself in a room with just men or not enough women, say so. Call it out. They kind of. Uh, one last point from me. Um, 
Go and have a look, people, if you haven't seen it already, at Dinah Rose QC's valedictory speech, Lady Helens, on the Supreme Court website. She opens by saying, the legendary Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked once by somebody, um, when will there be enough women on the US Supreme Court, the nine judges on the US Supreme Court, when, when will there be the right balance? And she paused and said, famously said, nine, because there were nine men for so many years and no one thought that was a problem for so long. Why shouldn't there be nine women for a period of time? thought-provoking, made, made me think, actually, that's a very fair point, actually. Anyway, read the speech, it's very, very powerful. Um, we must uh, move on. Um, champion of the week, I must say, my champions of the week are Mary and Charlotte, but um, we can't just big up our friends and our, our fellow panellists and, and guests. So um, I think, Chris, if I've got the right person, you're going to tell us who, uh, who your champion is of the week, aside from present company. Yes, well, very briefly, uh, Champion of the Week is the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, he is he is certainly something, isn't he? He's extraordinary. And um, the latest development is uh, he's created basically a meal deal, hasn't he? We can all go out and uh, half of it will be paid. Um, this doesn't start straight away. Uh, Connie uh, Trendle, uh, has, an A-level student, has been researching this for me, not least of all because she's babysitting this evening. Um, and uh, I wanted to know more about whether that kicks in just yet. But no, it's in August when it kicks in. And he's obviously aware that the high streets are suffering and not enough people are getting back into um, restaurants and get into cafes. And we need that. We absolutely need that. The high street is going to have suffered enormously. The one thing that we hope will still be there are the restaurants and the cafes to sustain the vitality. Um, and the viability of these areas and so he gets my champion of the week for recognizing exactly what we need to do um, and that's just a range of measures that he's introduced but that's the planning one. Thanks Chris. Uh, nudge of the week. No one's been brave enough since me to nudge a judge. Paul who did a nudge? Oh he's on mute again. Oh he's on mute again darling what's happened to him? <laughs> oh dear oh dear. It's the audience. I'm reading the, the questions. I take you. Um, <laughs> right, I, I've written down here, nudge of the week is the government to get their white paper out this time of the summer recess. Frankly, baloney to that. I'm not going to do that. I've just been looking through the questions, which is why I wasn't focused upon the, the mute, looking at some of the comments. I think nudge of the week, we, we said nudge rather than criticism of the week because we didn't want people to, to feel as if we're being mean to them in this show. That's not our approach. But I think nudge of the week possibly is to the leadership of our respective professions, mine and Charlotte's. Um, to try and nudge the issues that we've been talking about uh, today and, and all of us perhaps look a little more deeply uh, at ourselves and how to move these things forward. Uh, I've been genuinely moved this afternoon and also been moved by a lot of the questions and comments that have been made. So thank yeah. you for coming on, Charlotte. Thank you again, Mary. I'm proud to share a panel with you. Oh, that's great. And I would like to, there are some lovely messages. Um, so thank you very much. And thank I you, Charlotte. I've read them all. There's so many we can't reply to them. But I've read them all. They're really, um, say, very moving. Some of them, and, and uh, um, probably with GPDR, there's not very much we can do with them. But we've read them. We've, <laughs> we've thought about them, and um, and uh, yeah, thank you. Basically, thank you. We need to improve that. Yeah. What's coming up, Sasha? Tell us what's coming up the week ahead. Well, you never know. I, I, well, your chance yeah. of getting a Leeds decision have been yeah. put back about three months by your comments last week. So next week, I just think in the theme, and it's great, we've got a really impressive guest in Sue Mann, the chair of the RTPI, so that will be fabulous to, to obviously um, will develop and continue with the themes that we've talked about this evening. Thanks, Sasha. I wish to say I, I won't be with you all ne next week because uh, Tatiana's booked in for her um, C-section for our, our baby um, 7 a.m. next Thursday. So, um, so you'll be like me. If viewing numbers go up, I'll be really cheesed off <laughs> when I'm not there. <laughs> so, just make a note of that. You can send the beard instead of sending it to me at home. You can send it to the hospital. Um, anyway, so uh, to wrap everything up, thank you so much um, for joining us again, Charlotte. Thank you, and, and Mary. Thank you as well for, the, for your candour. Um, um, as well really appreciate that a little bit of news about the future before we go we're going to conclude our first season on the 30th of July with what would be episode 15 if I've counted correctly which may well not be correct because my maths is so bad what that means is there are three episodes to go in season one next Thursday the 16th and the 23rd and the 30th at the usual time of 5 p.m but we will be back 
season two, which will run from September, date to be confirmed, through to December with a mid-season break coinciding with half term. Uh, and we will have a shiny new uh, website to share with you very soon as well. Please watch this space as well as we have a single email address as well, which will hopefully make flyers and that sort of thing easier and you won't get bombarded with lots of different flyers and different people. Um, so please watch this space. Uh, we'll, we'll send it all out on the LinkedIn page. So once again, please follow that if you don't already. Um, finally, don't forget your donations to the NHS, another charity of the choice. Uh, uh, if you if you enjoyed the show, and even if you haven't, uh, please consider making a donation. Um, see you next time. You won't see me next time, but everybody else will see you next time, and I'll see you whatever my next time is. Um, have a lovely evening and a great weekend. Cheers, Cheers everybody. Good luck, Charlie yeah. and Tatiana. Thank yeah, you. So good luck, much. Charlie. Cheers. Thank you. I'm now going to go and watch Green Live at Nebworth on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>